Hey there. Welcome to Tiny Shifts. In a world where it can be too easy to be overwhelmed by, well, pretty much everything, this podcast is all about how the tiniest of shifts we can make in our everyday life can radiate out and make big and meaningful changes in this world, nudging it to be a little bit more courageous, a little bit more joyful, and definitely more loving. I'm so glad that you're joining us for this first episode, and it's a good one. I want to tell you a little bit about us. So my name is Reverend Shauner. I'm one of the hosts of the Tiny Shifts podcast, and I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister. And I want to be fully transparent. You know, this podcast is really based in Unitarian Universalism, which is kind of a mouthful. And if you don't know what that is, you may be like, oh, maybe I'll turn this off because uh, that seems like something I might not want to be a part of. So we're a liberal faith community, which means we believe that each person has a piece of the truth, that we're all in this life together, and that being human takes practice. So this podcast radiates from those beliefs, which means that if you're a humanist and atheist and agnostic, if you're spiritual but not religious, if you're searching or questioning, if you have a faith but want to be challenged or invited into community, then you might find a home here. You don't have to believe what we believe to be a part of this community. What's important for us is that we're all practicing what it means to be human. So if you have common cause with us, I'd be so grateful if you hung around. So what can you expect in this podcast? Well, each episode is going to be focused on a challenge that we're all facing. It's going to invite us to go deep into that challenge in a place of reflection and meditation sometimes conversation, and then it's always going to end with a challenge, a tiny shift that we can all make that engages that challenge head on. Well, maybe sometimes sideways, sometimes in a roundabout way, but all of it in a way that helps us shift towards that world that we're, well, the world that we dream about, that beloved community. And we're beginning this podcast actually looking at something uh, kind of challenging, Maybe you're, you're not expecting it, which is that when we look out on the political discourse and the political movements of our time right now, in 2023, what we see is a significant rise in, well, fascism. And I know, I know, you might be like, what? Fascism? But I swear, we'll get into that. What I want you to hear is that we think there's something wrong with the political discourse. We think that the elements of division and polarization are too great. They're really threatening the fabric of our community and our democratic institutions. And that is something that we should all be concerned about. But also, we need to practice ways of responding. I know that I feel often overwhelmed by the political discourse of our time and what feels like my limited ability to, well, do anything to affect it. And so that's what we're diving into in this series, in our first four or five episodes. How do we respond to these polarized times in a way that doesn't allow us to retreat into ourselves or get burnt out? That's the question I want you to hold on to. So what's going to happen on the podcast? Well, first, you're going to hear a little bit of me talking. It's a message all about wrestling with this idea of the concept of fascism and is it actually going on and what is it? Because I know it's kind of a nebulous topic. And then after that, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with a colleague of mine, the Reverend Dr. 
Elizabeth Stevens. Now, Elizabeth is a Unitarian Universalist minister serving in Idaho, and what you're going to hear her talk about is, well, the fact that her town is being taken over by a Christian nationalist cult and how her community is responding. It's a really great conversation. And then at the end, then I'm going to give you a challenge about how we can make a tiny shift that makes a difference. Do you know what's good advice? Before you return a container to the fridge or the cabinet, especially if it contains a sticky sauce or liquid or anything really, you should probably close the lid tight. Not just put the lid on top. And pray that somehow the forces of gravity will somehow exert more pressure upon it than the force of the next hapless human who encounters it. I've learned this lesson over and over and over and over again. And my husband, as my witness, I have yet to truly internalize it. Which means that I often am cleaning up the messes that could have been prevented if only past Sean had more foresight. Some lessons we as humans need to learn over and over again. And often we can't learn without firsthand experience. Which if we're only talking about a sticky kitchen situation, it's one thing. But when it comes to lessons on a more human or humanity-wide scale, it can be a tad depressing. It's why I love learning about world religions. And seeing how some of the basic lessons that are taught within different traditions are mirrored in other religions. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that all religions are actually the same, not at all, but what I am saying is that there are common lessons taught over and over again when we look at the different faiths. Like take this one story from the Christian Bible. In it, a group of lawyers and other types are gathering around Jesus and they ask him, how do we obtain eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, all you have to do is love God with all your heart and your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And the group being filled with the litigious type inquire, but who is my neighbor? So stopping the story for just a moment, I just love this moment because while I'm sort of poking fun at lawyers, there's something so human here, right? Like instead of embracing the most expansive notion of neighbor, the question is a transparent attempt at getting Jesus to narrow it down, to tighten the circle to a manageable and maybe agreeable few. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he does what Jesus often does is that he tells them a story, a parable. In this parable, Jesus says that there is a man who is robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And all sorts of people pass him and do nothing. All sorts of people you'd expect to care because of their professions and their piety, because they are good people, pass this man dying on the side of the road and do nothing. Until a Samaritan stops and helps the man. And what you need to know at that time is that Samaritans, this group of people, were amongst the most hated and reviled groups of people that those people talking to Jesus would have in their lives. If you were to say, who do you hate the most? They would say Samaritans. Who was the worst type of people? Samaritans. 
And so when Jesus is telling this story, he's saying, the person you hate the most actually stopped and cared for the man on the side of the road. And so every stereotype you have of that group, it's not true. The Samaritan in the story challenges everyone and refuses to be defined by the division that would divide us one from another. It should really confound us, this story. Retell yourself the story, if you will. But instead of a Samaritan, I want you to insert the group of people that you have animosity for. Yes, this is the part where you admit that you have animosity towards a group of people. We're human. Tell yourself that story. That the group of people that you think would care the least would be the ones to stop and help when every one of the people that you think would, didn't. Who is your neighbor? Well, in this story, Jesus says, everyone. It's a universalist message so simple and profound. If we lived it, it would change everything. Who is your neighbor? Everyone. Leaving the artifice of us and them behind is wonderful in theory, but it is so hardwired into us, this way of the way that we divide ourselves. It's so primordially human. Our young brains learn the world by dividing them, dividing everything into concrete categories. This is this, this is that. This is what I'm connected to, this is what I'm not. The in-group and the out-group, it creates a sense of identity and safety, who I am and who I am not. We learn who it is easy to love and who it is easy to hate. And these lessons are passed virally, directly and indirectly. The story of us and the story of them. So when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? Partially, he's being asked, how much of the programming of division, how much of the us and the them must I unlearn? How much of myself will I have to upend? I mean, how would you answer? Because if we're honest, us and them, it feels good. It's clarifying, galvanizing even. And rarely does it prompt us to lift up a mirror to ourselves to question the division being drawn and the personal and political implications. And so there is a reason that Christians have told the story of the Good Samaritan over and over and over again for 2,000 years because it is a lesson that we must learn over and over and over again. There is no us or them. Life's beautiful diversity is held in a mysterious unity. It's a lesson we humans have been trying to teach each other for centuries, remembering and re-remembering. And Christians are not alone in having stories that teach this message. In Judaism, the Talmudic sage Hillel was once asked to summarize the Torah, the book of laws in Judaism, but standing on one foot. 
He responded, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. In Islam, in one of the hadiths of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the prophet speaks of a man who finds a thirsty dog. And this man offers this dog water until the dog's thirst is quenched, even though he didn't have a lot of water for himself. The prophet heaps praise on this man who broke down the division between the animal and the human world, seeing the kindredness of our thirst, opening up empathy and compassion. Over and over again, we come back to these stories because compassion and empathy are never perennial. They need to be planted and replanted age after age, generation after generation, heart after heart. We must plant the seeds of a collective humanity and pull the weeds of everything that threatens it. Planting the seeds and pulling weeds. So what are the seeds that we are called to plant now? In this particular moment of political polarization, and what are the true weeds that we must clear in order to allow them to grow? I don't think I'm alone to be approaching the question of our collective future with a sense of fear and maybe dread. The state of our planet in existential crisis, the state of our political discourse and mobilization is truly frightening to me. It scares me that the truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. It scares me that we endured a violent insurrection trying to overturn election results. It scares me that we've seen a continued rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Arab and anti-Muslim violence. It scares me that militias patrol ballot boxes and intimidate voters. It scares me that we have seen the targeting of LGBTQ people with hate-filled laws and the accusations that they are a threat to children. I'm afraid for migrants facing floating razor wire as they swim to this country to request asylum. I'm afraid that we have a Speaker of the House that if he got his way would invalidate my marriage. I know I'm not alone in this fear because I hear it from all of you, from my friends, and it's not just Trump. It's the conditions that let Trumpian figures take power and retain power and maybe regain it again. It's the preaching of a gospel of grievance that like a virus has infected our discourse, telling you that someone else has taken something that is rightfully yours. Which in a time of economic uncertainty and global instability, environmental and demographic crisis is a narrative that even classically privileged groups and people can relate to. It's a primal fear a fear of things changing, a nostalgia about the world having been simpler, easier, better before, before, before all this. I've been pushing for this series on fascism and Christian nationalism for some time, but if I'm honest, there's a part of me that also resisted it. I mean, the word fascist has been thrown around for decades. It's used to describe everyone's political opponent on all sides of the political spectrum. Thus, talking about it can feel like we are the townspeople in the old fable of Chicken Little. The fascists are coming. The fascists are coming. 
And people look around and they don't see the archetypal fascist with their textbook goose-stepping and brown coats. And the warnings begin to fall on ears that have tuned them out. I've also resisted this series because, well, it's not the most easy topic to talk about. Even during this prep work, I wondered if we should change the topic to something else. But here is what I keep coming back to. That in our faith, we believe that telling the truth matters. In giving a name to what we are experiencing, it has less power over us. And second, that our faith is not a faith of bystanders. But ours is a faith in which we are called to make our love public. We see ourselves as here on this earth, not for ourselves alone, but for the liberation of all beings. So in this series, Prophets and Bystanders, it is all rooted in the question, what is the role of liberal people of faith in responding to the rise of fascism and Christian nationalism? And that question presupposes a fact, that Christian nationalism and fascism are, in fact, rising. For some of you, this fact may seem self-evident. For others, you may well be on the fence about it, maybe thinking we're being a bit too reactionary and talking about it. What I ask for you is to approach this series with an attitude, with an openness of what might be illuminated by this perspective. The point of this series is not to get everyone in our congregation to agree. I mean, have we ever succeeded at that? The point of this series is to try on a lens and a perspective and see what truth it can reveal and to see what it asks us individually and what it asks of our faith. So let's take a step back and define our terms. What does fascism really mean? Now, in Reverend Cecilia Kingman's Berry Street lecture that some of us gathered to watch on Thursday evening, the one that included the My Little Pony, Cecilia has been researching fascism for most of her academic career. And she drew on the work of Jason Stanley, a professor at Yale whose work focuses on fascism and propaganda. Now, Stanley describes fascism as being both an ideology, but also a political method. That there are outright fascists in this country who have a fascist ideology, a belief that this country should be ruled by a strong man. But it is the fascist political method, a set of strategic tactics that are deployed and used by people of varying ideologies that Stanley says are most important to focus on now. As Anthony DiMaggio, professor at Lehigh University, writes, the United States is not a one-party dictatorship. Rather, the concern is with the threat of a rising fascistic movement to the stability of the republic, which is to say that the undercurrents or elements of fascistic politics in America have steadily grown more extreme in recent decades, particularly in recent years under Trump's presidency. So what are those elements of a fascist political method that these academics are warning us about. I'm going to go through a few of the ones that Stanley outlines, and as I move through of them, I want you to think in your minds where you have seen these tactics deployed. The first is a mythic past. This is where people will tell you that we were once a great nation, but not now. We were, but we are not now. We were great when that, when a, a dominant racial group ruled over others. 
But somehow that group doesn't have the same power and other groups have taken that away from us. And we are now victims of them. And we long to return to that past in which we were great. The second tactic is the use of propaganda. Now all social movements and all politics use propaganda to persuade, but fascist propaganda makes a distinction between friends and enemies. It casts the other as a threat and presents the idea of the other as fundamentally opposed to the nation. So instead of just disagreeing like reasonable people might do, the fascists frame every disagreement as a battle line. A battle line between those who are threatening the very foundation of this country and those who might, rather than those who might just have a different opinion. The third is an enforcement of an unreality. In authoritarian regimes and in fascist political method, they work hard to convince the population that number one, everyone is lying, and that somehow the lies don't matter. And when the truth no longer matters, democracy can function. And this unreality is enforced by a takeover of media, schools, and cultural institutions to enforce a conformity to one perspective. Institutions that teach multiple perspectives on history always threaten this move. Expertise is always a threat. Science is always a threat. Intellectuals are always a threat because they complicate the narrative. So anti-racism and critical race theory is a threat because it tells an alternative history of a not so glorious and mythic past and present. Even anti-bullying and social emotional learning become targets in K-12 schools because building empathy and understanding of difference is not compatible with these single narratives. And finally, there's a deep-seated sexual anxiety that is created. Cecilia says, in every case across different cultural and historical settings, fascists will fan the flames of sexual fear, saying your women and children are under threat and you need someone to protect your families from those people. No wonder we're talking about bathrooms and trans people in sports because, well, these are just some of the characteristics that Jason Stanley speaks of, of character, that are characteristic of a fascist political method. The essence of this fascism is a desire to restore the greatness of a mythic past that has been destroyed by those people who took it from you and who are causing all the social ills. This system can only be upheld if the truth is disconnected from reality and a rigid social hierarchy is enforced. Fascists prey on us in times of challenge, exploiting suffering to tell us who did it, and we are susceptible to it because it preys on base human-level instincts of us and them and simple answers. To name the actions we see in the world as being part of a fascist practice, it allows us to see different realities as connected. 
that we see at the root of legislative and cultural attacks on trans and queer people is a sexual anxiety trying to trump up fear of those who are often misunderstood. That book bans going after university for teaching critical race theory, going after schools for teaching the 1619 Project, are all a part of an attempt to create a single and unchallenged narrative of not only that mythic past, but the present reality that holds up the hierarchy of those currently in power. That the attacks on reproductive rights and gender-affirming care seeks to alienate us from our right to claim our lives for our own purposes and to choose what we do with our bodies, regardless of the wills of those in power. Culture wars, attacks on democratic institutions, blame and scapegoating, for me, it's actually relieving that we're not being attacked from multiple directions, from multiple forces, but that all these fronts are connected, that we are witnessing the common political method being deployed on multiple fronts. But most importantly, no matter the particular political ideology that a fascist political method is attempting to perpetuate, our liberal and liberating faith, faith must clearly and definitively reject it. Here's something I want you to hear clearly. Within our church, we have diverse political perspectives. Some of us are more radically progressive. Some of us are more conservative. There is space within our faith for a broad political spectrum of beliefs. But there is no room in our faith for either an ideology of fascism or fascist political methods. That is outside the bounds of our covenant. Because the threat of this fascist political method is not that conservatives get elected. The threat of this fascist political method is that the most marginalized people will continue to be brutalized. And the very democratic institutions that we rely on to protect us from those lesser, lesser angels of our nature will have eroded to the point of usefulness, uselessness. Not because it is the progressive political perspective, but because we believe that everyone has a piece of the truth we believe in democracy. We believe that everyone is worthy of belonging and should not be the targets of generations of violence or to be targeted and scapegoated. The threat of a fascist political method is that base-level human capacities that are being preyed upon will get so triggered that even sensible, caring, and seemingly morally upright people will collaborate with evil. And our liberal and liberating faith needs to be a force that continues to plant the seeds of radical and unequivocal belonging and connectedness and even unity in the human community. We must pull the weeds of scapegoating and grievance and privilege. We must get behind those who've been fighting against the brutality of fascism for generations, indigenous people, black people, queer and trans people, migrants, we must refuse the binaries and keep learning the lessons that may be impossible to learn for good, but need to be learned now. This is what our series is going to be exploring. The ways we respond, how our church responds, how we individually respond. But today, we're just resting in the power of naming that despite the complexities of how to respond, 
and that feeling of attack from all directions. As this specter of fascism rises, there is a stunning and simple clarity that should be at the heart of our response. Everyone is your neighbor. Plant that seed and weed everything else. Amen and blessed be. Plant the seeds and pull the weeds. How's your blood pressure? Do we need to take some deep breaths? <sighs> you know, fighting against fascism is nothing new. And we're reflecting on how many of our community members, those who are older, have memories of the ways that our communities have rallied against fascism in some different ways. And those of who are younger, it, it can feel like it's the first time that we're really asking these questions. And so I wanted to have this conversation. That's why I invited Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Stevens to join me, because I wanted to talk about the real-life ways that people are responding to this, not in the abstract, not in some academic discourse, but in a down-to-earth way. Well, I am so grateful that on our first episode of the newly relaunched Tiny Shifts podcast, I am joined by a colleague of mine, the Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Stevens, who serves the Unitarian Universalist Church in Moscow, Idaho, the UU of the Palouse. And Elizabeth has a background and the doctoral work in the way that trauma interplays with questions of ministry and is playing out in society right now, and has a very particular experience of ministering amidst the kind of fascist impulse and fascist tendencies that we're seeing playing out in the United States. And so I thought we'd have a conversation about her ministry and her experience. So hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for being hi. here. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Do you want to just talk a little bit about who you are and your community? I am actually a raised UU. I grew up in the Starkin UU Fellowship in Plymouth, New Hampshire. I have been in ministry for almost 25 years now. I was ordained in 2000. And I serve the amazing, just the amazing, most amazing people in the world. We pull people from both, both Washington and Idaho. And the Palouse stretches from Spokane down to Lewiston. Um, but it's a beautiful part of the country. One of the things that makes my ministry really interesting is that there is a Dominionist cult that identified Moscow as a town that they wanted to take over. They're running candidates for the school board. They've run candidates for the library board. They've run candidates for city council. They're buying up real estate like nobody's business. Can I just pause? When you say dominionist cult, can you unpack that a little bit? It fits all of the criteria, the sociological criteria of a cult. You know, the charismatic leader, the pressure to stay in, the punishment to get out. There's also a really horrible and painful pattern of sexual and domestic sexual abuse and domestic violence. They call themselves Christ Church, but their at least their profile in the public square is is patriarchy unreconstructed patriarchy the the father's the head of the church of the family and women and children aren't to submit and the job of the church is to take over the structures of power in the name of god and to impose their opinions on the rest of us so the church, the church is mobilizing itself to basically take over the, the civil institutions of your town. Exactly. They're trying. 
that must be a very fascinating place to do ministry with this group of people that you love who are pulling from universities who are, I imagine like the liberal progressive elements that in Idaho, I know have a, have a long history. And yet from what I've heard from the outside, Idaho has been really pulled to the far right in really extreme ways in the last couple of years, maybe longer. What is it like, like situate yourself, your people in that that kind of social space. We are the church that really is out at the forefront on social justice issues. Yeah. We're visible in support of reproductive choice. We're visible in support of the LGBTQIA community. And, you know, some of my mainline colleagues have uh, either, some of them have been told directly by their, their boards of trustees or their deacons or whoever holds the authority that they are not to take a stand on, on, on sort of the hot button issues. And I think it, I think it kind of renders them irrelevant, you know, at a time when we've got this dominionist cult that is, that is fi fighting the culture war. You don't want to necessarily fight back, but you do want to stand. You do want to take a position that's clear and out front and in opposition. Are you seeing people like coming are you seeing people coming? Like, is that like something they're talking about when they're arriving? My doctoral work is in trauma. Right now I'm reading the landscape through the lens of trauma because I don't think people are coming saying, I want to be part of a community that is that supports bodily autonomy. I think people are coming saying, I am traumatized and afraid and I need a place where I will be held and supported and accepted and, and loved so that I can, can heal. Mm -hmm. I've been here now for 11 years, and I have watched Idaho politics gravitate toward extremism. The way that has happened is that the, the Freedom Caucus or the Idaho Freedom Foundation, which is the fundraising arm, essentially, if, if a person fails to toe the extremist line, then they are critiqued, attacked, called a rhino, and primaried. There's all kinds of voter suppression. Um, at the last legislative session was brutal, included some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, some really heartbreaking anti-trans laws, including one that prevents physicians and parents from offering gender-affirming care. It just breaks my heart, just absolutely breaks my heart. It's really frustrating to live in Idaho and watch this happening. And there's a story that Moscow has told, which is that we're a little blue dot in, in a very red state. Certainly, there's a lot of progressives in my community, both in who are members of the church. But we're not a blue dot anymore. Yeah. We, we are a purple dot, and we're getting a more reddish shade of purple all of the time, in large part because Christ Church is able to attract extremists. Christian nationalists to our town. How are you seeing Christian nationalism showing up in the character of your town? So the I sit on the Human Rights Council, and we recommended the city council that all of the bathrooms in all of the public bathrooms in town be gender neutral. And Christchurch put out a little video advertising their their college saying in our, you know, come here where girls are girls and boys are boys. And pre-pandemic, the one issue that 
they would mobilize around was pro-life, right? Yeah. So they would have marches for life and this, that, and the other thing. They don't work with us on housing the homeless, feeding the hungry. You know, they're not part of the coalition of churches that are actually trying to help the needy in our communities. But they would mobilize for these pro-life things. And, and then during the pandemic, they mobilized to protest the mask mandates, mm. which just boggles my mind. The inconsistency between we want to save the pre-born, but we're not willing to inconvenience ourselves to save the already born you know, the vulnerable among us, the elderly and, and, and the immunocompromised. But, but it's, we're seeing like a similar pattern in terms mm -hmm. of the, the pushing against like in the, our school district. Yeah. Folks are really anti-mask mandates, anti any sort of like COVID precautions that like radicalized a group. And then they joined forces with the Moms for Liberty crowd, the, the anti-trans, anti, and they've kind exactly. of come together on this issue and like leveled up we see the the sort of above board things are are you know running for school board and and claiming that we have pornography in our high school library which is garbage and then there's actually so some of the things we see the planned parenthood was firebombed i think that was back in like 2014 and that's the problem with this rhetoric is that you know here's the rhetoric and then here here are the people who are who are taking that to the next extreme when we say hold a, a, a protest in support of reproductive freedom, we expect there to be counter protesters. We expect those counter protesters to be armed. That's just par for the course. So we are starting the series entitled Prophets and Bystanders Confronting Christian Nationalism and Fascism with Liberal Faith. Our, our biggest hope for this is to really challenge people to think about the ways that liberal folks have like collaborated with fascism in the past or have made it easier because of kind of liberal tendencies, especially that tendency to, to kind of privatize, to go within or to demand civility or middle ground in these sorts of conversations. You know, it's funny when you talk about the ways in which we're complicit mm -hmm. with fascism, one thing that you didn't name that that I see, I feel like we still have some lingering kind of salvation by character, Puritan, mm. you know, like if I show weakness, it's, it, you know, if I'm vulnerable, if I let people know that I'm having a hard time, then I'm somehow morally inferior. There's this conflation of poverty with moral inferiority, mental illness with with moral inferiority and so i think our folks are or at least my folks i'll just talk about my folks, yeah. right so one of the things that that i've been talking about a lot especially since the pandemic is that you know rugged individualism consumer culture wants us to be isolated and strong and existing solely in our nuclear families and if we do that then as the the carbon economy crumbles as, you know, all of these institutions that are crumbling and failing us, like we're not going to be able to come together in the ways that we need to, to survive. Right. Mm. So I talk a lot about being vulnerable with each other and, and sort of weaving this community of care, replacing the, the Puritan <laughs> work ethic, the, the rugged individualism with an ethic of, of community care. And it's a bit of a hard sell because a lot of my folks are like, 
you know, I should be able to handle my stuff and they should be able to handle their stuff. And the truth of it is things are getting bad enough that none of us are really able to handle our stuff, <laughs> at least not in isolation. We need each other. Yeah. In your Berry Street response, you talked about like you were followed home. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So after I organized the Women's March in January of 2017, and I would say for about two months, there were these guys in a white truck and they would be waiting outside the church when I left the church and they would follow me home. And some days they would be waiting not far, you know, in the parking lot across the street from my house. And they'd follow me from my house to the church too. Hmm. I did talk to the police and they said, there's, if they're not interacting with you, there's nothing we can do. So it's, it's like intimidation. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of just that ambient sense of, Hey, we, we know where you live. We know where you go, you know, we're watching, this is our community. Right. Yeah. One of the other things I was struck with in your Barry Street response was how, you know, you're talking about this like really vile, like group, but also like these are your neighbors. Right. Right. So on the one hand, we need to be clear about our values and we need to be loud and out in the public sphere. On the other hand, we need to remain human beings to those neighbors. So we need to cultivate the relationships. And individual members of Christchurch are actually lovely people. And you can relate to them. And, and it's important that we, that we have faces, you know? It's easy to talk about the, the other side in a way that dehumanizes. And, and that doesn't help anyone. It's kind of this both-and approach of being clear about who we are and also continuing to establish and maintain relationships with our neighbors so that if the culture war explodes, Parker Palmer has this quote that, that violence is a result of unexpressed emotion. The way to keep it from getting violent is to stay in relationship, to keep talking, and to care enough about each other that the idea of violence remains unthinkable. Which is like a really, I, I feel like that's so grounded in our theology and our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I know from my people, and if my congregation is anything like yours, they come to us with the same question over and over again, which is, how can I believe in the inherent worth and dignity of people who believe this, do this? How can I be in relationship with people who believe and do these things that are so against my beliefs? And there's like such a deep struggle there. I, I know I feel that at times too. How, how do you respond to that? And how, how do you see your church as, you know, I often think of church as a place to practice this sort of stuff. Like what, what does church look like that's helping prepare folks for this sort of work? I think it helps that we're a covenantal faith and that we focus on behaviors that aren't acceptable as opposed to individuals that aren't acceptable. I think that gives us a, a good groundwork or a, a good foundation my folks ask a lot about that. How do I tolerate the, the intolerant? And they also ask the other question, which is, how do I stay in relationship with my family members who are espousing beliefs that I find harmful and offensive? We talk a lot about that. And what do you say? What do I say? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like to use other people's words. So there's a book called On Gathering. And, well, actually, there's any number of sources that really point to the fact that that we're not here to, we're, we're not going to be able to change each other's minds through rational debates. 
So one of the things that I say a lot to my folks is we'd, we'd like to believe that we are rational beings who occasionally have feelings, but the data shows something very different. Mm. In truth, we are emotional beings who, if we work really, really hard at it, can sometimes shift our behavior, but who actually, you know, what we think is rationality is we're really good at rationalizing. Mm. And, you know, I think it's not the self-image I want about myself. No, no. But, you know, and I think if there were the scientific data supporting that, (laughs) (laughs) that I would probably have been fired. But there is this this whole body of scientific data that shows that actually we're not as rational as we like to think we are. So we talk a lot about working around the edges. It, It doesn't make sense to dive into talking about abortion with people that you don't have a relationship with. You know, they're not going to be able to hear. We're operating with entirely different worldviews and entirely different data sets. We've been trained in specific ways to respond, to react, you know, with particular patterns. And we're not going to shift those through substantive conversation. Where we can shift is cultivating the relationship, finding the common ground. Talk about gardening, talk about Mm. hiking, talk about dogs, you know, Build the relationship so that it so that you are a human being mm. and not a category. There's a model that came out of Harvard Business School that I slide into a service probably once or twice a year mm. where you start by listening. If you have the relationship and you have the green light, you have a sense that I'm the right person, this is the right time, I'm going to move forward with this conversation, you start with listening. Can you tell me more about why you feel that way? Then you identify values that you share. So in what you're talking about, I hear a real value for this or that. And I share that. Value safety. Exactly. You know, I hear that you value safety. I hear that you value parental rights. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is that that we hear, we we pull it out and say, I I feel the same way. Then you ask, the third step is you ask for permission. Mm. But there are some things that I see a little bit differently. Mm. You know, is it okay if I share my, my perspective? And then and only then do you actually share why you why you think what you think, why you believe what you believe, why you do what you do. And I feel like that that permission piece, one of the things that I've learned in parenting my child is giving choices de deactivates the nervous system. Exactly. And so if someone says to you, Hey, can I can I do I have permission to say why I might disagree with you? You're ner- you get to make a choice which allows you to feel a little bit safer, which probably allows the conversation to go a little bit better because if they're not in the mood, they're going to say no. But if they are, they feel like they've made the choice to be in that conversation, which allows them to feel more agency and thus be able to be in the conversation probably a little bit better. Right. I love that. That feels like a, like at these micro moments, what do you think our, like our liberal faith's message is in the, in the wake of these rising kind of fashionist and like white nationalist movements. How, how is our church as a, as a body? How do you see us responding in how should we respond? Fascism is about imposing and enforcing uniformity, right? There's one right way to be human. So I think one of the things that we left, lift, lift up is there are as many right ways to be human as there are humans. Mm. It would be nice if, if we were born and were handed an instruction manual, this is how to be a good person. But but that's actually not how it works. And we're not going to give you an instruction manual. What we're going to do is we're going to hold you in community while you figure out your way of being human. So that's the first thing that we say. And then the second thing that we, we say and we believe is that 
the world is a better and richer place for all of us when, or it will be a better and richer place for all of us when all of those ways of being human are supported and celebrated. One of the things that breaks my heart about structures of oppression is the suffering that's caused breaks your heart, but there's also an opportunity cost, right? Mm. All of these, these people who aren't able to be their full brilliant selves because they're trapped in these oppressive structures that are trying to force them into a box or make them less. There's many ways to be human as there are humans and every way deserves to be supported and celebrated. When I hear in that a real reclamation of like a deep sense of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Like that deep desire for everyone to truly be free and not in a narrow sense the way that the right has claimed liberty and freedom to be about uniformity, about the ability to have guns. But what I'm hearing from you is something way deeper than that. Well, and it's a freedom that's balanced by interdependence, mm. right? Yeah. So if we're held in covenant, if we're woven together into beloved community or, you know, then, then our freedom, you know, the natural limits that get set to our freedom is our care for each other or care and compassion for each other, right? So if I do something that that's experienced as harmful and somebody says to me, ouch, you know, if I'm in relationship with them, if I care about them, I'm going to say, thank you for telling me. And I change my behavior, hmm. you know? So we need that corrective of healthy accountability to kind of keep the freedom from being selfishness. You've done this doctoral work in trauma. And at the beginning of our conversation, you were saying, I'm, I'm looking through all of this through the lens of trauma. How do you, when you look at your community and you know, larger, how do you see trauma playing out in the ways that people are being pulled into these, these narratives, pulled into these, these tendencies that even, you know, I think people can be surprised at how far they can go down some of these rabbit holes without even realizing it. Right. One of the other things to understand, one of the things to understand about trauma is it's not a rational process. Again, we are not rational beings. It's a physiological one. And when we are triggered, when we are activated, we are no longer capable of rational thought, making good choices, but we're not capable of authentic connection. We're not capable of creativity. I feel like the media and I feel like the political rhetoric is really designed to be as triggering as possible um, mm -hmm. to keep us in that state so that instead of insisting on compromise on, on, you know, public service as service, as opposed to, you know, control uh, so that we're not, we're not insisting on, on that, we, we just kind of fly to the reactive place of our respective corner. Hmm. One of the things that the pandemic did when we were in lockdown is it took away our capacity to co-regulate one another. So here we are alone, afraid, these horrible things happening, George Floyd. So we're all triggered. We're all moving through trauma and we don't have access to the tools that help us come back to ourselves. And so I told them over and over again, our job is to stay human. Mm. Our job is just to stay, get through this, get through it together and stay human. Don't gravitate to that reactive place. 
there's a practice of of learning to keep track of where we are and oh I'm activated I better put this down I better step away I better do the things that help me come back to my right mind yeah. and so that you can get back to that place where you're able to connect authentically where you're able to be creative and a, a lot of times that involves turning off the TV you know <laughs> putting down the newspaper getting off the internet Fuse to me sometimes, like our culture right now, is trying to infect us with fear. And so those practices of regulation and co-regulation, which is so much more effective than, than you know, the, self, the self-care that we do in isolation, right? Uh-huh. When we come together, we, we come back to the most human in ways that are just stunningly beautiful and really more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, that makes me think about like all of the implicit or like all the parts of being at church on Sunday that you don't even like think of as being regulating and restorative, you know, being around other humans and Mm -hmm. just, just breathing in proximity can help Mm -hmm. us restore those rhythms. Singing is a big one. It's huge. Right. That being a part of that. Even even the worst congregational sing along <laughs> has that impact of like you know trying to to sync up and that process of adjusting and aligning and trying to get it right and then you know the small social moments of reaching out a hand in connection greeting one another listening you know having moments of silence going in all of those things are restorative to our to our nervous system to ourselves in ways that. You know, I don't think a lot of people are like, I need to go to church to restore my nervous system, but often that is the impact of it. And, you know, I say there's only two churches that I've gone to that I've regretted going to, you know, most of the time I'm like, oh, I don't want to go. Maybe this Sunday, maybe it's my Sunday off. Maybe I shouldn't go. But I always, I very rarely, those two times regret going because of those, those impacts on me. Right. Right. Well, and I think, you know, the question that we try to ask ourselves and each other, and especially people who come for the first time, you know, what do you need to feel safe and supported? Right? You know, what do you need to feel safe and supported? Because we know that when it's when our nervous system feels, when we feel safe and supported, is that our nervous system releases, and then we're again capable of connection, authentic connection, compassion, and creativity. So it's, I think we have to ask that question and keep asking it over and over again, you know, because for some people, silence and, and, and deep breaths are, is very regulating. And for other people, it's triggering. Yeah. So always we give permission for people to ask for what they need. Mm. And right. the name of this podcast is Tiny Shifts. We named it Tiny Shifts because so many people talk about how they feel completely overwhelmed when they look at the world, when they look at all the things that needed to change, and even when they look at themselves and their lives and feel like they're a mess inside and that they would want to change a lot of things Mm -hmm. or even grow in certain ways. And we wanted to, we wanted to kind of take a step back from it feeling overwhelming and that we don't have any capacity to do anything. And to think about the tiny shifts that when we take them spiral out both in our own lives and in community. 
to make a world that is a little bit more loving, a little bit more just, and a little bit more joyful. And so I'm curious for you just personally, as a human, you can take off your minister stole and like <laughs> your, your sense of like any proper answer for this question, but like, what's a tiny shift that you have made that has allowed you to live in your own freedom a little bit more to, to step out of this overwhelm? I think that just the pause, right? Just pausing, you know, there's so much pressure to keep moving, to keep going. But when I just pause and, and sink down into the part of me that I call God, my connection to the divine, to spirit, and just wait, something will come up. And it's not how to solve all of the big problems or how to make my way through the overwhelm. But what comes up is what's the next right thing? Mm. You know, what is right for me to do for right now? And then I do that thing. And in my life, all of the good things spiral out from that one choice to, to trust spirit instead of my monkey mind, to wait so that I can respond with compassion and self-compassion mm. instead of react habitually. Are, are, are you ever surprised at what comes up after that pause? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I'm surprised. Sometimes I'm furious. I mean, like I argue with spirit. Is there, is there a time that comes to mind when you had that reaction yeah. of like what it, what it invited you to do? Oh, gosh. So that response comes most often when I've been triggered by an individual relationship, right? You know, so, so somebody will say or do something that just makes me want to rip my hair out and, and I pause and I sink down. And what comes up is, is either you know, apologize, do reach out, release the irritation, come back with compassion. There are those kinds of, of moments. Is there anything else that you, from any part of the conversation that you'd want to add? I, I think it, it would be this is our advocacy in the public square is more effective when it's coming from a place of spiritual maturity. Hmm how we are matters as much as what we say and do. And so strategically to me, it makes sense for church to be a place where together we work on that project, which is not to say that I don't preach on, you know, dismantling structures of oppression and this, that, and the other thing. But honestly, more often I'm preaching on how to stay human, how to be a good human, how to keep growing, how to process the trauma. People do need to be inspired, but but it, these times are so hard that people need to be resourced. Worship, the all of the things that we do are resourcing people to then go out and be, you know, and do the next tiny right thing, make those tiny shifts, do the next right thing. Yeah, I think I think that would be it is invest in being better humans, being more skillful humans. That's the best return on investment in my experience, both personally and as a leader. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me and thinking of me. And this has been a fun conversation. So you heard in that conversation so many good tidbits and you heard Elizabeth respond what her tiny shift is. That pause. And I 
just want to add one little thing in, which is that when we're faced with this overwhelming political discourse that feels like it's pulling us apart, we're trying to figure out how to respond in the pause. Here's what I want you to do. This is your tiny shift for the week. When you're feeling that overwhelm, when you're feeling like you don't know how to respond to a situation, be it political or otherwise, I'm going to invite you to pause, to listen, and to ask yourself, where is the hurt? And what seeds do I want to plant? So when you notice that overall, take your pause, ask yourself where the hurt is, and notice and make a commitment to yourself of what seeds you want to plant. How can you reject unnecessary division and tend to the healing of the fabric of our community? Just just that simple, small thing. Well, thanks for listening to The Deeper Podcast. No, that's wrong. Thanks for listening to this first episode of The Tiny Shifts Podcast. I still want to hear what you think. You can go to foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey and tell us what it was like. Do you like the new format? What do you think? Is it too long? Is it too short? Just give us some feedback. We always appreciate hearing from you. On this next episode, we're going to hear about the role of institutions and faith communities in responding to this, which even if you're not a part of a faith community, I think will be really insightful for the ways that groups collaborate or don't with the rise of fascism. I would so appreciate if you would share this podcast with one or two people that you think might appreciate it. In the show notes, we're going to put some links to various resources that we are pulling from that might be useful for all of you. All of this to say, thanks so much for being on this journey with us. I so deeply appreciate it. Until next time, take care.